You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Inside Healthcare. I'm Matt Brock, your host for today's broadcast. It's June. It's Pride Month here at NCQA and across the country. Now, last time around, we featured an insightful discussion with Dr. Kellen Baker of the Whitman Walker Institute, where we focused on health equity for transgendered individuals. We'll continue to focus on LGBTQ plus issues throughout this month. Later this show, we'll give you some historical facts and important stats on uh, health care for the gay community. Before that, a deep conversation with a doctor who lifted himself from a childhood of trauma and substance abuse to a life of innovative mental diagnostic tools for children and adolescents. After that, join us for some fresh perspectives on healthcare tech and new directions in measurement from one of NCQA's newest leaders. But first, our talk with Dr. Yarit Alemu. Born and raised in Ethiopia, a young Dr. Alemu found his talent as a soccer player, but he later dropped out of school as a teen. That led to drinking and drugs, all masking high-level emotional distress in his life. When he moved here to the United States and attended boarding school, his substance abuse followed him and plagued him in his new home. Luckily, at age 18, he entered rehab and has remained sober for more than 30 years. It was that experience, though, that not only began his road to recovery, but put him on the path to learning all he could about psychotherapy. He especially wanted to explore how therapy helps to treat and begins to heal young people with underlying trauma. He learned that before there can be treatment, there must be measurement to identify what's going wrong and help figure out a game plan for that troubled teen. So a few years ago, Dr. Alemu started TQ Intelligence, or TQI. The company uses unique human attributes like voice and speech to identify and treat behavioral issues in children. How do they do it? Well, they use biomarkers through an app-based product called Clarity AI. These markers measure emotional distress in an objective way with the ultimate goal of eliminating disparities in mental health treatment outcomes. And if you're still asking, how does it work? I get it. That's why he joined us for this in-depth conversation on using tech to gather real-time data for accurate measurement in assisting doctors and counselors with behavioral health diagnosis. Here's our talk with founder and CEO of TQ Intelligence, Dr. Yarit Alemu. One of the um, school systems that we are in the process of finalizing a contract, a couple of weeks ago, had a murder-suicide. It's a high school. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually suicide-suicide. One, one of the kids took the lead, uh, but they had an agreement. You know, trauma is invisible until the kids start to act out, right? Uh, and and so so uh, so just because you can't see it, right, doesn't mean that uh, it shows up on the kids' level of functioning. You know, you have a significant drop in the academic performance. Like think about a kid that is carrying a hundred pounds, right? And then you have another kid that's carrying five pounds, and then you're asking them to race. Right. The kid who's carrying a hundred pounds could be athletic, right? Chances are they're not they're not gonna they're not gonna go too far. Right? Emotional distress, the way that we identify it and measure it, is that 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 this burden, right? This trust that they've been experiencing, they cannot be able to do anything about this trust. Now it's converted into distrust, right? Distrust is the same thing as these negative emotions regardless of what diagnosis you have, right? Whether you have depression, anxiety, trauma, the problem that, that, that you experience directly is because of these underlying noises, right? That hard to see, hard to detect, right? Even experienced therapists will miss it because you, you can be focusing on the behavior and all the activity out there without really, let's focus on what actually matters. So when treatment is effective, what happens is the emotional distress will go down and go down. As that happens, their level of functioning will go up. 
tell us about biomarkers. What are they and how can they reveal trauma in a patient? These are probably 1,500 you know, biomarkers approximately for voice-based biomarkers that, that, that are in the process of being discovered. And so, so, so the reason that we, you know, um, we focused on voice is because the, um, uh, the populations that are, that we focus on, um, about 80% of their mental health disorders are related to trauma. Trauma is primarily a physiological experience before it becomes an emotional and psychological experience. There is uh, changes in the nervous system that are directly related to trauma, right? And so, so when we talk about voice biomarkers, what we're looking at is in voice, right? The voice is impacted by these changes, for example, in a cardiovascular activity and in the nervous system. So, so when we when we measure emotional distress in voice, we're not measuring some kind of transitional kid not happy today, and then we're in, that's not what we capture. What we capturing is there is these idiosyncratic changes that happens how someone speaks, right? Directly impacted by these changes in the cardiovascular system and the nervous system as a direct consequence of trauma. What about TQ intelligence? You've developed software to help reveal and measure adolescent trauma based on biomarkers that the therapist measures during the appointment, for example. So how does that work? We use a voice algorithm to quantify the severity of the um, emotional behavioral distress. So we take about a 60 second or less a voice sample and then being able to um, identify the severity and then give that feedback to mental health providers in real time. So as soon as they finish collecting the data and hit submit, there's a feedback that, that comes in on their on the phone app that they're using to collect the data. Yeah. Um, the other uh, thing that, that we do uh, is um, uh, supporting therapists to use data for intervention purposes. Right? So, so we're, uh, especially the area that we focus on, the system of care that we focus on, this is the publicly funded, these are kind of Medicaid-based, um, largely is low-income kids um, uh, that are in services for mental health. Um, and so there's virtually very limited data in that space, right? So, so it's 45 million kids right now covered by Medicaid and CHIP. Um, at least 5 million of them are receiving mental health services at any given point. Right. And Medicare is the largest pair when it comes to mental health services. So how did we end up this way with millions of kids receiving mental health services, but so little measurement data about it? So, so there's very limited data. Uh, there's a long history of disparities in treatment outcomes, very limited transparency. Uh, and part of that is because you have the therapists that work in that setting are the least trained. These are therapists that just finished their master's degree, not licensed, uh, very limited experience. So you have the kids that are the most severe, and partly is driven by trauma. Then you have the providers that are the least trained. So, so there is a good explanation why we have disparities in treatment outcome. So, so we use data, which we call augmented intelligence, right? To make sure that they at least know the severity and because that's the most difficult part of mental health services, like how bad is it, right? And we can be able to give them that data as part of their treatment process, not just once, but also track treatment outcomes through, throughout the process. Right? The other thing that we do in recognizing the difficulties that we have in terms of shortage of mental health providers, right? So, so the system of care that we focus on is already have been shortages way before COVID, right? So, so, so we look at how can we reduce the therapist level of stress and um, give them the time that they need to see more people, right? And so the way that we do that is we actually write the clinical progress report. We heard a lot on this show how a doctor or a provider gets really good at collecting data until they're swamped in it. Sounds like that may be the case here. 
anybody that I've known, including myself, the part of our work that is terrible, right, is actually the documentation process. In fact, 40% of um, therapists, right, therapists spend 40% of their time in some kind of documentation. That's two days out of the five work day, which is really, really crazy, right? So it has a financial impact for the organizations, the time, the stress. So what we're doing is we want to take, reduce that by 50%, give them one day back. The accuracy is the, the quality, because um, we're using algorithm to write these notes, right? Uh, it's much higher quality, much more accurate, and, and, and um, uh, put them in a place that, that they're not be stressed about this thing that has been eating lunch of therapists for centuries. Tell us a bit more about how you gather the biomarkers for measurement data. We have a phone up, both an iOS and Android. Five minutes before, as part of the counseling session, right? When they start, they will sit down, pull up the our app, pull that specific uh, patient. Um, we have a number of things that we collect. So, so we collect, for example, the SFSS. They have a, a clinician version. He has a. Uh, a parent version and there's uh, um, uh, and there is the patient version if the kid is 11 or older, right? So it's 20, so they do that, right? Um, we also collect the PHQ-9 to screen for any potential suicide. We also collect the adverse childhood experiences surveys, a 10 question quantify the severity is really good instrument, been around for a long time. So, so they collect that data, they will hand the phone or the tablet to the kid to do their version. If the caregiver is around, they will hand them to do their version, right? And then there is a hit record voice, and then we have them read a few things. Um, so if, they, if they're reading at the grade level, it will take them about 30 to 45 seconds to complete that, right? Everything is collected, now they hit submit on the app or on, the, uh, on their tablet. A few seconds, the results will pop in. Right? So all the instruments that, that we've taken and the voice, we, we they will see the severity, right? So the scores, for example, on SFSS that is 65 or above, they should be worried about that kid, right? If the PHQ-9 score is 16 or above, there's definitely have to think about suicide. Right. Um, if the A score, which is, is a, be, between one and 10, is four or above, that kid have a pretty significant consequences due to trauma. And then the voice algorithm pointing out to severity, right? The certain specific emotions are elevated, right? And then they will get that result. And what we do encourage them is to share that. So we made it visually available, right? And if they've been collecting data for a period of time, there's a graph that comes on their phone showing is this thing moving in the right direction? Is it not movement? Do we see a reduction in symptoms, right? So all that they have available before they even start the session, right? And then when they go home, we have dashboards each therapist have their own dashboards, their own web portals. So if they're seeing 25 kids, there are 25 kids showing up on that dashboard. On that dashboard, we they will see anything that we say would be um, risk factors, right? We highlight those for them, right? We tell them when the next time they should be collecting data, right? So, so and then we make that dashboard available to their supervisors. Wait, so... You you help parse the data to track progress, compare the patient to other kids, but you also never know who's collecting the data. Can your system be used to provide oversight of the process? Not everybody, not everybody therapist is doing a good job. <laughs> it's, when I say a good job, right? Some therapists are much more effective than others, right? So, so as a supervisor, it's helpful for me to know, right? Not just asking some anecdotal feedback, but data, this therapist may need more support than the other therapist that seems to kind of knock this thing out, right? So, so we have a specific workflow that workflow is intended to empower, right? So, so we want to make sure the therapists are collecting data sitting in front of the kid, not after, not before, right? So when they ask the kid to give them data, they know that this is, this is a two-way street, 
And then when you make recommendation, for example, for medication, show them the data why you're making that recommendation. You can't just say, you know, um, they're not doing well, right? That's not data, right? But if I show that to a parent, right, like walk them through, you know, we were like, we put it on red, right? So every time their score elevated to, um, to that high risk level, we make sure that we put that on red, like kind of color coded to make it easier for the therapist to be able to share that data and use that data for intervention. You've talked in the past about redemption. You're sober. You're trying to improve behavioral health so other kids don't go through what you went through. Tell me about redemption. How does it play into this? What is redemption to you? I mean, redemption is partly um, a commitment to give back something that I have received freely. I'm not any more deserving of this than any other kid that is um, uh, have similar issues, right? So, so, so there is this um, kind of restlessness, right? That comes with um, I am I am what I am, right? And and it's partly because. Um, a uh, um, number of things that are invisible to me had to come together. A number of people that has to get out of their way to be helpful to me. Right. And so, so that kind of is, is a lot, you know, a lot of responsibility that I, you know, I feel right. And, and I have um, um, kind of driven by um, this need um, that there's something that I can do, right? There's something that I can do, the privileges that I have right now, right? The privilege, the privileges of uh, quality mental health services translated into going to all these fancy schools, right? Studying all this stuff, um, working in a places that um, have given me the privilege to make a difference. And then, and then taking intelligence is, um, it's kind of a leap on, you know, I no background in technology. As you said, I don't have any background in business, right? Um, I'm a psychologist that focusing on administration and research. And so to make that leap, right? Um, there is no evidence that, that, that what I was thinking is actually is doable. I had no, you know, there's no confirmation for quite a while, right? All I knew is that we can do better, right? I knew that much. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about equity. It's bad enough that behavioral health metrics are so hard to find, then hard to gather, and that's coupled with a lack of available psychologists to evaluate adolescents, figure out if they need any help at all. But then you take all those issues and you put them in schools and clinics and neighborhoods that are historically underfunded and underserved, and towns that are historically poor or ignored, socially disadvantaged. Now you've got an equity issue on your hands. By the way, let's remind the audience that you grew up in Ethiopia suffering from poverty and trauma, which led to substance abuse and a need for intervention. Poverty, right? Poverty is in some ways is that you're sipping a poison that you cannot taste and you cannot smell. By the time that, that you got screwed, you already have the consequences that you're experiencing. Right. So, so part of what comes with poverty, right, is so for example, when we talk about the adverse childhood experiences, that's a nice way of kind of putting, uh, quantifying how bad that poverty and other trauma has, has, has impacted you, right? So, there's 10 questions. If you live in California right now, when you go to your doctor, they have to assess adverse childhood experiences, they get paid to do that survey. Okay. If the score is four or above, you got a pretty difficult life ahead of you, including um, a life expectancy that is 50 to 20 years less, right? Cardiovascular diseases, mental health issues, high risk for um, diabetes. So when I talk about trauma, these trauma experiences are primarily a physiological experiences, right? It is that, that, that you know, um, it's what we call this um, the epigenetic clock. The epigenetic clock, if everything is going well for you, right, 
like I got two kids in, in my home that, you know, they're very much, you know, into their own comfort, right? They know how to advocate for themselves. So you count the age from one, two, three, four, five, six, the kid goes through a normal developmental process. When it is poverty and trauma, what happens is that epigenetic clock is put in high speed, right? So a kid who's 15 have an organ of someone who's 55. Something we've talked about here on the show before, the physiological ramifications of behavioral health issues. And here, we also see a link between social determinants of health possibly sending a child into free fall. It looks like we begin to blur the line between physical and mental health. That's when the life expectancy issue shows up, right? By the time, I mean, you've seen people like, you know, also people that, you know, that kind of grow up and I, I see them after 10, 15 years, they have aged dramatically, right? So, so, so that is where the equity issue comes in is that people who grow up in low-income communities are high risk for experiencing these adverse childhood experiences. What are they? Primarily a history of emotional, physical, sexual abuse, um, about, you know, if there's uh, scarcity, parent substance abuse, uh, parental incarceration, right? Divorce, all those things add up being anything for or above. So it's a small percentage of the, the population have that, but the disproportionate number of those are, are, are kids from low-income communities that carry that burden, right? There is a level of freedom that is undeniable, right? When you smoke dope the first time, like for some of us who are carrying a lot of burden, right? It is an immediate relief. That's my discovery. Like, it's like, man, I, this, you know, nobody told me about this. You know, I wish they told me about this when I was five years old, I could have started earlier. <laughs> so, 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 you know, um, when I talk to kids, you know, that, that I used to see clinically, I don't put it in a way that somehow that you're just smoking weed, right? The conversation is about what is it doing for you, right? What, what is it doing for you? It's doing a lot. It's doing more than anybody in their own life, including their senior psychiatrist or their therapist. Nobody can compete with that, right? The problem is it comes in with a heavy cost, right? So, so, so when you get the relief, you know, when you're smoking weed, is that you're less irritable, um, you, you don't have to experience that much pain, uh, you don't have to be in the here and now. You can take off somewhere else, right? So, so, so if you're a kid, 12, 13, 14, sitting in the classroom, which requires for you to be able to pay attention, right, in the here and now, because information has to go to your short-term memory before it goes to your long-term memory, and then to make use of that when you're sitting in front of an exam, right? The downside of smoking weed is that it takes away your ability to be able to participate in educational activity, right? It impacts that significantly, right? And so, so when, you, when you talk to them, you're not just talking about that behavior, you have to talk about what it is that they're trying to medicate, right? You can't really get anywhere with them by saying, you know, you need to cut down any, that's not a conversation that therapists should engage in. Right? They have to find a way to be able to connect at that level. And then they have to find a way to be able to helpful to them to reduce that, that, that you know, burden that they're using weed to be able to kind of reduce. So do you get the kids something that replaces the feeling they get taking that drug? I'm sure you don't just replace one addiction with another. That just doesn't sound like a long-term solution. Tell us what you did, if you don't mind. I've been sober for 32 years. You have to find meaning, right? You have to be able to really, you know, deal with, right? Deal with what Freud said. There is kind of part of being a human being is to be able to experience this kind of groundlessness, this helplessness that comes in, right? That is under normal circumstances. If you got trauma, right? You have to multiply that by three, four, five, right? And it gets, and so, so, so using, I mean, Freud or using as well, means, you know, it's uh, uh, other people went in the direction of religion. Uh, he went in a different direction. But what he said, the thing that is important that he said, 
is that the goal of psychotherapy, right? The goal of psychotherapy is to uh, move the person from chronic neurosis, right? Neurosis, anxiety, depression, and all that. From chronic neurosis to everyday unhappiness, right? So, 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 so we have right now the the thing that I hear that kind of makes me nervous when about mental health. People assume that therapy is going to produce happiness, right? As a this is a fleeting experience. But the goal of therapy is to be able to uh, support the person to have this meaningful life in a context of the nuances, the everyday unhappiness of uh, life on life terms, right? And the same thing comes in when you when you get sober, right? We work through the whole thing, in, in, you know, uh, you go through 12-step meetings and you change the way you think about stuff. The goal is very similar to that, right? They're not, you know, nobody I mean, is going to inject you with something that you're experiencing happiness all the time, right? But it is to really reframe your experiences in a way that is healthy. That's the insidious thing about trauma is it sticks around in the body, which means it sticks around in your mind, it sticks around in your soul, it sticks around in your emotions. Um, and and it's a, you have to be like, make a concerted effort, right? A concerted effort to manage and to see if you can kind of reverse the consequences, right? And again, I come back to that point. It, you know, it, happiness is not as not a should not be the goal for you know. I mean, if you're if you have a glimpse of happiness, you do much better than most human beings. And a glimpse, I said that you know that's from time to time, right? And and, and the goal is is really I mean the same thing that I said about kids for adults. The goal is is one is to have a meaningful relationship with other people. There's no getting around to that. We we are social beings, right? Isolation kills more people right now than um, you know um, other mental health diseases because we're not meant to be alone, right? And then you have to be able to have a meaningful relationship with your work. Mental health disrupt that goal. Substance abuse disrupts that goal, right? In fact, the anecdote for mental health is to really move in the direction of that meaningful life, right? This meaningful life that philosophers and theologians have been talking about for centuries. No, it's not that, you know, no amount of modernity, no amount of technology is going to substitute, right? That which is human, right? Technology can augment, can enhance the quality of life, right? It's not a substitute to that need for social connection. Well, we're glad you could join us today. NCQA is all about measurement. So today was a chance to hear your view on the state of measurement in behavioral health, along with the technological possibilities. When you guys were talking about measurement before anybody was talking about measurement and, and insisting, right, even in behavioral health, you know, even behavioral health, when it's so bad, you know, the heaters and all this stuff and, you know, people that want to measure and all that, right? That's an important service, right? You don't know what you're not measuring, right? It's a, um, you can't just give providers a license, right? To see someone and build services without being accountable as it relates to the quality of service that they're providing. So, so I mean, I follow you guys and I appreciate what you're doing. It's a very difficult job in healthcare. Um, you know, you, you know, there's a lot of pushback whenever you talk about changing um, how people do their work. And we certainly appreciate the work you're doing and how far you've come in your life. It's good to see someone able to give back. I'm a, a beneficiary of um, excellent behavioral health treatment. And I happen to be, you know, lucky, not because I had money. I, I was in the right time in the right place, right? Um, I had a soccer scholarship, you know, coming from Africa, right? an academic and soccer scholarship. Um, but I could not function the first year and year and a half that I was, when I came here. Right. And, and so, so again, I, you know, I was at the right time, people who actually care about, um, therapists that are committed. Right. And, um, that has a pretty dramatic impact, uh, in my life, uh, including directly contributing to what I'm doing right now is sticky intelligence. Right. 
there is a way that we can deliver these quality mental health services, right? Quality mental health services have a dramatic impact the people who are on the, on the receiving end, right? You can be able to move people right, from debilitating symptoms to one that is they become a productive member of society. Founder and CEO of TQ Intelligence, Dr. Yarrett Alemu, with his tech and tips for measuring adolescent behavioral health. Moving forward now, Ed Yerkeson is NCQA's new chief technology officer. We'll let him describe his new responsibilities and how he foresees developing changes for the company. Ed spent years as a C-suite executive before coming to NCQA. He was chief technology officer at Embedded Healthcare, where they help payers tailor payment models that lead delivering better care at lower cost. He was chief product officer for Onyx Health, Microsoft's solution to the CMS mandate. We'll learn a little more about that in a bit. And before that, he was chief data officer at Care Journey, an influential leader in the healthcare data space, emphasizing digitalization as a key toward improving value-based models of care. Ed is clearly up to the job as our new chief technology officer. You'll hear now what inspires him, what drives him, and what needs to be done to move the country towards better healthcare. And right out of the gate, his team has some big plans. We're trying to transform the organization into a software product organization with the creation of digital quality measures. So this is now more than internal IT running our systems. It's actually the creation of software products that can be sold commercially. Actually, earlier this week, we started a pilot project for um, our digital quality platform. We have uh, five different organizations in this pilot. What we want to do is make sure that it works with everything folks Absolutely. are already working with. Correct. This platform won't be just for our measures. This is going to be a platform for all quality measures. So many health plans out there have hundreds of measures that they've maybe taken from us and then customized for a particular state or requirement. Um, we need to be able to provide a template and have our platform uh, utilize their, their coding, their quality measures. So we will be providing our own and we will be providing the infrastructure to run all of quality measures. So in, in, this is the short term, this pilot program. Talk to us a little bit about the progression and where you see sort of not the end, but uh, when you have arrived. Does that make so, sense? <laughs> there, in addition to this, we have others in the organization working on what we're calling the next generation of HEDIS or the next generation, next gen quality measures. So having these in a digital format, um, using somewhat similar, but maybe potentially different data sources, um, that when we are able to deploy this and have a health plan be fully certified and accredited on our platform, I think that's when we can say we've accomplished. Not only are you guiding sort of this technology uh, evolution, but it is a company and a, and a staffing evolution as well to support it. It, it is, absolutely. And there's some emphasis changes. So I put a big emphasis on what's called DevOps, which is really automation. And um, when you're building software, you want to have a platform that automates how your code is created and then how it's tested and really remove the manual effort around that. Um, we are creating a data platform and we have to ensure that our platform is properly managing and handling the data. And we're all human and bugs are going to occur. So having an automated system to identify when these issues occur, the sooner we can do that, the faster we can fix things. So if you can catch a, a bug within 36 hours, then the developers know that, okay, the code was introduced sometime between Monday lunch and Tuesday evening, and you can go in and, and identify the issue. So that's, that's a big part of what, what I try to do. And then the next part is around creating a learning culture. 
So people learn, developers learn well by evaluating others' mistakes and doing retrospectives. And it's not just developers. They've seen this with cardiac surgeons. They've seen this in a variety of, uh, of, of different mediums. But when you can actually get a group together and have a discussion or a retrospective around certain issues, you create great learning. Um, and then finally, I put a lot of emphasis around uh, ownership and understanding why. So in order to create a collaborative environment, uh, you need everyone to understand why we're trying to do something. Um, if you only understand the what, then you're really just an order taker and you're just writing a piece of code because you were told to. I want developers to be able to come back and say, I understand why we're doing this. How about we try this other approach? And, and you can get a, a, a feedback mechanism, a feedback loop really from your development team. And you create a very collaborative environment that way because no one person has all the answers and you need to, to be able to, um, to solicit this kind of feedback. Talk to me about that, about this team that you have taken from the old and you're adding some new folks. I have individuals on my team that have worked at NCQA for one or two, even two decades. That's really an amazing um, knowledge base that I'm able to leverage. And having these people in place, it shows their dedication to the mission. This is a mission-driven organization. And especially with software developers, you need, it's such a competitive market. You need people to have the, the desire or the, uh, the mission uh, focus. Many people, I imagine, come to you because they, they are developers and they've been developing things that they think are kind of useless. And this gives them some... Absolutely. And, you know, I've been in the, the healthcare space for myself for over a decade. And um, one of the challenges is quality. So there are many, many companies out there working on driving down cost, but the, the piece that's always missing is, is this option that you're giving me as good um, or better? And you can't truly understand value until you, you understand both quality and cost. So we are a critical component to understanding the value in healthcare. Value being more important than cost in, in many Absolutely. ways. You gotta get what you're paying for, right? Exactly, and you, you want, um, high quality services and you want to be able, you want that to be transparent. So you can make a choice between radiology centers and understanding if I get my MRI at a radiology center that's covered by my insurance, it's gonna cost me $50. But if I go to Georgetown or Johns Hopkins, it might be $2,000. Is it the same quality? And is it the same, essentially the same product? It's that, that part is missing from our ecosystem. And we have a chance to introduce that into the healthcare uh, environment. Um, as I see it, NCQA is, it's really the trusted voice of quality in healthcare. And because we are independent, we are able to be that trusted voice. Are there many organizations out there that are also trying to develop quality measures and metrics in order to improve the value proposition. Well, we're able to work with the government because we're independent and um, able to maintain our voice and our, our influence in this, uh, this very important part of the health, healthcare ecosystem. And tell us about your background. You, you said you've been in healthcare uh, for about 10 years. No offense, but your career has been longer than 10 Absolutely. years. <laughs> so, um, I was, my career has been based on building data products and platforms. I was getting very frustrated with the healthcare system. Uh, my mother was struggling with, um, with cancer and I just couldn't get the data that I wanted. And a microstrategy, two-time microstrategy client called me and, um, she had taken over a healthcare uh, startup and I joined and we commercialized an acuity index. So mm. this is the best measure of your health when you're in the hospital. So think in a way of your FICO score, but for your health. 
Um, and great learning experience working with providers. Uh, the secret sauce is it takes structured nursing documentation, which is really akin to mother's intuition. So my wife can look at my 12-year-old daughter and say, she's getting sick, but she's going to school because she doesn't yet have a fever. Your vital signs are a lagging indicator. And uh, this is, it's a system that's deployed in um, many academic medical centers from Yale New Haven to UPMC and Sloan Kettering, and um, it saves lives. And I've gone from there into the healthcare data space, the interoperability space uh, at an organization called Care Journey. Um, and at Care Journey, we helped establish healthcare data standards for claims and clinical data, uh, for SDOH data, for oncology data. And then uh, CMS released a mandate. It's called the Patient Access API Mandate. Um, and we had been very influential in that at Care Journey. Uh, so I ended up joining the Microsoft effort for this uh, at a company called New Wave in their product division, Onyx. Um, and we created a data platform to enable health plans to meet this CMS mandate. The mandate's designed to give someone like my mother control of her data uh, right now. Uh, and it re basically requires every MA plan, every Medicare Advantage plan, to deliver to uh, the beneficiaries claims and clinical data. Yeah, this, is, this has been a, a phenomenal experience driving uh, the adoption of, of this kind of data. Um, CMS's intent is they're really big inefficiencies. Um, when a Medicare Advantage beneficiary switches health plans, and they do this about every two to three years, and they do this on the calendar, Right now, the new health plan is blind. Um, if, if a diabetic patient switches health plans, the new health plan doesn't realize that this beneficiary, this patient is diabetic until maybe May or June of the year. And now with this data interoperability standard, they should be able to figure out January 2nd that this new beneficiary is diabetic, get that person, get her into a diabetes management program, um, checking up on her A1C, and that's good for everyone. It, it will likely prevent strokes and prevent amputations, and that's costly for the health plan, but it's horrible for the beneficiary. Mm -hmm. And this is, uh, this is really the intent of CMS, is to, to eliminate this black hole inefficiency. Um, and this is exactly the data sets that we're able to leverage for our digital quality measures. Hmm. Um, so when did you, uh, well, first, when did you become aware of NCQA in the progression of your career? Was it mom time or a little after? It was a little after. When I was at Care Journey, um, part of the reason I joined Care Journey is the president of the company uh, is a gentleman named Anish Chopra. He was the first U.S. CTO under President Obama and has really become the face of healthcare interoperability. So I was the chief data officer working hand in hand with him, helping develop these standards. Uh, and there was always the underlying question of quality. How do you evaluate, you have all this healthcare data, how do you know if something is good or not? And uh, that's when I became familiar with the HEDIS measures and NCQA. Hmm. And eventually, do you think we'll get to where, uh... Your where you started with your mother, the sort of um, carrying your FICO score for all of your health, carrying all your health records I, I like think, we carry I think our so. credit we're, records. We're definitely doing better. So mm -hmm. another example for my mother, um, she needed a planned knee, knee replacement. And we had moved her from North Carolina to Seattle, Washington, where both of my brothers live. And we just didn't know the orthopedic surgeons in Seattle. So um, she was assigned a surgeon and using the care journey data set, um, I was able to see that that surgeon only does 
15 or 20 knee replacements a year on Medicare beneficiaries. And you literally using quantity as a standard of quality, I said, no, I want a surgeon that is doing 15 or 20 knee surgeries a week, you know, and that's what, that's what we ended up finding. But the only measure of quality that I had access to at that time was quantity. And we can just do much better than that. So now you're here. Uh, what, what do you think, and you know our mission is to improve healthcare. It is pretty simple. Covers a lot of bases. Absolutely. <laughs> but it's pretty simple. What do you, what do you see as, uh, give me three words that get you to uh, improve healthcare. Where, what is better healthcare? I, I think better healthcare is, is simple. It's understanding quality. So it's really two words, understanding quality. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's in our name. Um, improving healthcare is broad, but I think we're taking the quality perspective on that. And that drives your value. That drives the whole, uh, the whole understanding of, um, is this good care or not? And that enables better decisions. Um, but when you can't properly evaluate two options, you're... You're struggling. Some of that darkness, we'll call it, is um, is intentional, probably. But <laughs> a lot of it is just the way we've built things over the years and kind of it's like it's almost like hospitals are. I think they make a, a very good um, metaphor in this case, because you always know city hospitals have this added wing, this added wing, this added wing and. And if you're a visitor, it can get confusing as to where you're going inside a hospital. I think that sort of serves as a metaphor for healthcare as a whole. Absolutely. And, you know, healthcare has changed dramatically over the last 10 years or so with electronic medical records. Um, in a way, it's the same evolution that the retail industry went through back in the 90s with data warehousing and really cash registers being able to track. And this is what MicroStrategy. Uh, grew upon was this evolution of data, retail data. Inventory now, tracking. Exactly. Um, and we found all sorts of anomalies. You know, one, one, a division of Target would have the same number of bathing suits that they were stock in the store in Ann Arbor as the one in Tampa, Florida, as well as the same number of sweaters. And these are just obvious mis mismatches that they didn't understand. They didn't have the data to see. So we are in really the, the early stages of understanding healthcare data, especially clinical data with electronic medical records. And now with interoperability, you can piece these electronic medical records together and you can get more of a longitudinal patient view or record. NCQA's Chief Technology Officer, Ed Yerkeson leading the effort in figuring out how to best break down the mountains of data floating around out there in the healthcare universe. We'll be sure to catch you up with Ed and his team in the months to come. We come now to Matt's facts, some nuggets of knowledge to bring to the water cooler. Once you've returned to the office, that is, if, if you have not. Our recognition of Pride Month continues here as we spotlight some important numbers highlighting the gaps in healthcare and support of the LGBTQ community. Here are some statistics from Johns Hopkins Medicine's Office of Diversity and Inclusion. Did you know in 1973, the American Psychiatric Association removed homosexuality from its original list of mental disorders? It wasn't until 2013, though, that they removed gender identity disorder from the same list. This year, the ICD-11, the latest version of the World Health Organization's International Classification of Diseases, will recognize that gender incongruence is a matter of sexual health and not mental health. And we have these facts from Hopkins Medicine quoting the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Compared to cisgender people, meaning someone whose gender identity corresponds with their sex assigned to birth, Transgender people are twice as likely to be unemployed, and for trans people of color, they are more than four times as likely to be unemployed. LGBTQ plus youth 
are four times more likely than straight youth to make a suicide attempt requiring medical attention. And according to one study, as many as 70% of transgender and gender diverse people have reported being the victim of discrimination when seeking health care. And one in five have actually been denied care by a provider. That's serious business. It's clear to see how wide the equity gaps are for the LGBTQ plus community. Populations are vulnerable when underserved and underrepresented with some healthcare providers acting at times as if their patients were invisible. The historic treatment of the gay community in the U.S. has hit an inflection point, and we're proud to be both an ally and a voice in their fight for equal rights and equal treatment in the healthcare industry and world. By the way, we pulled these stats from the wonderfully written Pride Heritage Guide, published by Johns Hopkins Medicine's Office of Diversity and Inclusion this year, and it's available for free for download. For more, contact them at diversity at jhmi.edu. That's diversity at jhmi.edu. Our Quality Innovation Series continues with more than 20 courses covering the world of healthcare and certification. These webinars run through August, but will live online for registrants, so you can watch as needed. We recommend getting the ever, ever popular All Access Pass. So go to education.ncqa.org to sign up today. On July 12th and 13th this year, we'll have our all virtual digital quality summit. There's still, still time to sign up. We'll be exploring the concept of an equitable digital health ecosystem. For more information and how you can get involved in this collaborative event, Search Digital Quality Summit at ncqa.org. Finally, let's talk about our live and exciting four-day health innovation summit. The inaugural event is live and in person starting on Halloween. It'll feature quality and care innovators from throughout the healthcare world, covering a plethora of significant topics you won't want to miss. To go to sponsor or to be a speaker, go to ncqasummit.com for more details. Switching gears, we again uh, reach out to you, dear listener. We want you to hear from you, your ideas and opinions on the topics we've talked about today, your wishes and wants for what you'd like to talk about in the future, and your dream guest and points of discussion we should cover. To give you something to chew on, here's a question to ponder from this week's show. What could be the far-reaching ramifications of improving behavioral health care for teens. It's worth thinking about, isn't it? Give us your responses by emailing us at communications.ncqa.org. That's our show for this week, episode 81 of Inside Healthcare. Thanks again for listening in, and don't forget to tell everyone you know what you've heard on this show. Plenty more shows are in our blog, so feel free to go back in time and listen. For producer Dave Smolar and the entire communications team here, at NCQA. I'm Matt Brock. We'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.